We've been in the book of Psalms all summer, and um, as, as I've said, this book of Psalms is Israel's hymnal. It's what they used in worship. Most of the Psalms open up with some kind of line. Today, today it's to the choir master. That, that's what the ESV does. I'm using the NIV this morning. Usually I use the ESV. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. So we'll be in Psalm 19. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't own a Bible, keep it. Um, but the worship songs of Israel, and we see the diversity of it. We've seen, we've seen songs of, of praise and thanksgiving, which are a, a lot of them. They're basic. They're very repetitive sometimes. We've seen complex ones, psalms of lament last week um, about, oh, God, where are you? My life is in deep turmoil, and you're not helping me. That was a worship song that Israel sang. There's psalms of ascent where Israel is, is those who live outside of Jerusalem, have to come to Jerusalem three times a year. And Israel's high elevation. So the psalms of ascent, as they're approaching Israel, they would sing certain songs. And so those are recorded for us. There's enthronement psalms where God is made king or declared as king. It goes on and on. Today we're going to look at Psalm 19. And this is the last sermon in the series of summer psalms. And today we're going to talk about two ways God has provided to worship him. All the psalms are about worship, but this one is, is one of my favorite psalms to look at, and it's about worship. So what is worship? Glorify God. Clearly we're going to see that today in Psalm, the very, very first verse. I would suggest to you this. This is a working definition. It's not mine, but this, this, this gets us moving. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth and adoration to God alone. Okay, there's only one God. So ultimate worth, and, and that's a hard one to analyze in your life. Is God the most ultimate thing in your value system? Um, and that, that is tested by how we live our life. We can say it's true, but it's tested by how we live our life. In adoration to God alone. So that's what worship is. How do you worship? When I ask that question, how do you worship, often what your mind goes to is the style. See, in this room here, we have, we have Pentecostals who want to dance in the aisles. We have some of you Presbyterians, you know, called the Frozen Chosen. <laughs> I wanted to make fun of the opposite end, so you know my heart if you come here. But so what is worship or how do you worship? It's not about style. Now, there's a book out there it's called Evangelical Reunion by a guy named John Frame. And he suggests that like gifted people congregate. Like gifted congregates, unless you have Pentecostal and Presbyterian churches, because they're like each other. And what we need is we all need to be together. And this church does that, probably out of, out of necessity because of this small town. But I love that aspect. Um, but nonetheless, it's not about styles. How we worship is not about styles. It's about a heart thing. And I would suggest to you that you worship with all your being, your words and your actions. Very easy to be in this service today and raise your hands to the Lord and then go out tomorrow and I use these hands for something that dishonors God. So how I worship God is both my heart attitude, the words I use, and the actions each day I live my life. Because worship isn't Sunday morning. Worship is 24-7. And where is it legitimate to worship? And this all sets up the message, by the way. Where is it legitimate to worship? If you were a Jewish person before Christ, where were you limited in your sacrifices? The temple, in the temple alone. If you sacrifice outside the temple, that was idolatry. That was disobedience to God. 
Now, obviously, the average Jew that lived throughout the, the, the Roman Empire could pray to God and sing to him anywhere. But formal worship had to be at the temple. Jesus changed all that in John 4 when the moon of Samaria says, hey, we worship on this mountain, Mount Jerusalem. You guys worship in, in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. You don't know what you're worshiping, he tells the lady. But he says, there's a day coming when you'll neither worship in Jerusalem nor on Mount Jerusalem because you'll worship God in spirit and in truth. The spirit of God has been given to each one of us. And that we, we now are the temple of God. So individually I can worship, and we corporately are the people of God, the temple of God, the house of God, not this building. We are. So wherever we congregate is the place we worship. Does that make sense? Yes. That leads us to this idea of many people say, well, I don't go to church to worship. I go out in nature to worship. Great, I do too. And that's what our psalm's about today. But I want us to understand the importance of corporate worship. That we are the people of God, and the Spirit of God, yes, is in individually in each one of us if you believe in Jesus, but he also is in his people as a group. So that's why we get together to worship. So, two foundational truths I want to talk about. Two foundational truths to be a worshiper. Um, here's the first one, and I've already talked about this a little bit, but I want to expand on it. The first foundational truth you need to be a genuine worshiper is that my entire, my entire existence is for his glory. Why don't you think about that? My entire existence is for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31. This is in the middle of context. Let me read it to you, then I'll give you the context. Paul says this. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. You see, eating and drinking is pretty mundane, isn't it? How often do you eat and drink? Every day. Or whatever you do, do the glory of God. The context here is Christians who come from different cultural backgrounds and have different convictions about what's right and wrong about eating and drinking are not together in this one group called the church, the body of Christ. And they're offending each other. You know, they're offending each other over what they eat and drink. And Paul's saying, stop offending each other. Learn to live your life to honor the person next to you, not just your selfishness. And so he summarizes that, chapters 8, 9, and 10 of 1 Corinthians with, then whatever you do, eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for God's glory, not your own. That covers all of life, you guys, all of life. Do we really grasp the implications of this? Every moment of every day is designed to either project glory to your God or subtract it. Whether you know it or not, that's what we're doing. And it's, it's, a, um, it's a heavy calling, but a beautiful opportunity to have this mindset that says, Lord, today, when I wake up in the morning, today, I want to live a life that honors you in the mundane, <clears throat> in the mundane and in the important things I'm doing today. There's a, a Dutch um, theologian named Abraham Kuyper. This is 100 years ago. This is what he says about this concept. Look up here. I want us to think about this. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let's read it again. <clears throat> Could someone give me a bottle of water, please? That's not what we're reading again. We're reading this again. 
There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Do you get it? We first have to get it intellectually. Then we got to make sure it gets into our heart, you know, that center of our being, that everything about me belongs to Jesus. Everything. And the opportunity to bring him glory is endless. So here's where the rubber meets the road with this question. Have you and I committed our entire life to Jesus? Or have we simply added Jesus to our life? This is an important one. Many who, follow, who claim to be followers of Jesus, um, I believe in Jesus, but much of their life is not reflected. I want to be careful of legalism or, or judgmentalism here, but much of their life doesn't reflect the fact that Jesus is their Lord. It's important that Jesus is in their life, but he's not their life. It's different to have Jesus, he's part of my life, than he is my life. So that's something to give great thought to. Have you and I simply added Jesus to our lives? And if that's what we've done, we've added him to a whole list of other things. Do you know what that's called? Idolatry. Because I have these other idols, and I've simply put Jesus with it. He has to reign supreme over everything. Thank you, sir, very much. All right. This introduction is going way too long. <clears throat> the next thing that's important to be a worshiper, and I say it this way, to increase your knowledge of God is to increase your worship of him. Okay? So I say I can increase my knowledge of God and just be arrogant. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, knowledge puffs up but love edifies. So Paul says that. Knowledge puffs up but love edifies. But Paul says all through the, his, his writings, you must grow in your knowledge of God. And what he means by that, you must get to know him better. You must learn to walk with him as your father and as your savior, Jesus, and as the spirit who is called the Lord in 2 Corinthians. That's the relationship. So to, to increase your knowledge of God, i.e., your understanding that helps your relationship, is to increase your worship of him. As you know more about him, as I know more about him, and I really want to know him, meaning walk with him, a relationship with him, that opens the door wider and wider for me to worship him. The more my awe increases, the greater I want to fall down and worship. Does that make sense? So we must grow in knowledge. It's all through the New Testament. If my only reason to read the New Testament is to get information to win arguments, that's arrogant. But if I'm looking to know who my Savior is, as the Spirit drives me to the Word, then that increases my worship. That's the introduction. Turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is broken into two sections. How we worship God through creation and how we worship God through his word. So let's do one at a time. How we worship God through creation. I'm going to read to you Psalm 19, 1 through 6 in its entirety. That's the section on worship God through creation. And, and my, NIV says for the director of music, a psalm of David. Um, the ESV says for the choir director. And I looked the word up and it could refer to, to someone who runs a ministry or who leads people in singing. So I, I want to um, get your mind here on a choir. A choir. Did you, did you love choirs? 
How many of you would like to sing in a choir? Keep your hands up. Raise them up. Good. Elena, you see this? Elena's going to start a choir <laughs> for Christmas. And um, this is an opportunity for, because if you like a choir, there's a reason multiple voices coming at you is, is just, um, I love it. She said, I couldn't sing in the choir, though. So could you please talk to her about that? Would you like to see your pastor sing in the choir? And she, she didn't say I couldn't, but she's heard me sing. Um, so for the choir, imagine now this passage, a choir singing. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, in the east, and makes its circuit to the other, the west, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. Let's stop there. That's where it stops. So Paul is thinking of, as he looks in the sky and notices the stars. So, you know, Paul's very, not Paul, excuse me, David, David. David's very aware of, of the rotation of the sun. Whether David believed rotation of the earth around the sun or simply the sun around the earth, which is a more phenomenological, as you look at it, the sun rises and goes down and you're standing still. It doesn't matter what his cosmological understanding was. But he's looking at it and said, all this declares the glory of God. The glory of God. And it says, it doesn't talk to me, but it teaches me. Its voice goes out to the whole earth. Everyone can learn about who God is by simply looking at the creation. And David is focusing on the sky. And imagine David's understanding of, of astronomy. 1000 BC. You and I have way more understanding of astronomy than David did. From simply his observation, he's amazed. We now have a science that is very well tuned, that teaches us so much. And sometimes I wonder if it's kind of like, oh, I'm a bit bored today. And we've lost the awe and wonder because it's so prevalent, knowledge about it. Think, think of the magnitude of the heavens and how insignificant you are. So David stops there. He doesn't talk about the rest of creation. Scripture encourages us to look at creation to see what we can learn about the creator. And this passage isn't simply about he's the creator of it. It also suggests that God is the one who causes that sun to come up and go down every day. He's the sustainer of his creation. Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Colossians chapter 1 says this. That God upholds all things by the power of his word. The whole universe would dissolve if God wasn't holding it together. God is the sustainer of all things. He controls all things. He governs all things. And this is an opportunity for us as we look at the world to see, my God is doing this today. Read, read today, if you want to go home, read something. Read Job 37 and 38. This is God telling Job. When, when Job says, God, you owe me an answer. I'm in great pain and you're not doing anything about it. You owe me, it's a huge lament. You owe me an answer. 
And, and after 36 chapters of Job saying this, God finally says, okay, Job, put on your big boy pants. We're going to talk about what answer I owe you. He goes, I'm going to ask you questions, Job, and you answer me. And then he gives a description of how he runs his entire universe right down to the grass growing and the deer feeding. And in the end, you know what Job says? Okay, I was wrong. I get it now. We need to have a fresh understanding. We've been taught regularly about Darwinian evolution. Whatever your view on evolution is today, I don't want you to get hung up on this. Darwinian evolution, though, is the concept there is no creator. There is no anything outside of our system. And we have a closed system of which evolution moves things forward. It's directionless, purposeless, and random. So there's no one directing it. We're just accidental um, atoms that came together and formed us ultimately. And that's ridiculous. Common sense, you look at things and go, no, 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 no. Now, whatever you believe about the fact that there's minor levels of evolution, that's not my point today. My point today is, do you understand God as creator is to elicit in you a worship. The heavens declare the glory of God. And that I want to enter in as the choir we enter in to sing to him how amazed we are at his creation. Listen to Romans 1. This is a negative passage, but it brings out a very important truth. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Like this is a really somber passage, but it's right in the middle of it. It's about creation. Since what we know about God is plain, since what may be known about God is plain to them. See, it's not hidden. People say, I want more evidence. According to Paul, it's plain because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. You see those two things? At the heart of worship is glory to him and gratitude for what I, who I am and what I have. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So if you're in this room today and you follow Jesus Christ, this is not new to you that, that we can look at creation and, and learn from him. If you're in this room today and, and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and, and maybe, maybe you thought that, you know, that there's not enough evidence, I want to suggest this to you, that God has set up his universe as like his painting. If you're an art expert, you can, how do you know forgeries? Because someone look at it very carefully, maybe through a microscope, I mean a, a magnifying glass, to see brush strokes. And to see that, that um, the brush strokes of the forger are not like the original painter. There's a signature sometimes to these painters. We can look at creation and see the signature of God. And conclude so many things. So I want to show you a couple slides. Actually what I'm going to do here is show you many slides. And I'm going to sit down in a moment. And I want you, there's going to be about five seconds for each slide. And this is pictures I just chose from creation. And I want you to look at them. And as you look at them, what does it bring to your mind about who our God is and how he sustains his creation? Okay? And what your response should be. So this is, I need you to be very active in your mind. Um, but I want to show you the first one. This, talking about the heavens declare the glory of God. This is what David could have seen. That's the Milky Way. 
That's what David could see. From the naked eye, a camera caught this. And is that amazing? Oh, no, go back, go back. Sorry, that's five seconds. So now go to the next one. This is what we see. And this is a, some kind of gas that, that that third arm to the right is utterly the size of our solar system. That's how big this is. Now, I want you to start it over, Alex. I know I'm messing with you. This is timed, five seconds each. I want you to look at these and simply say, what can I learn about my God from this? I meant to tell you there's going to be a quiz. What are some things that came to your mind about our great God? Louder. Magnificent. Beauty. Details. The flowers. And I looked through tons of flowers. I wanted to pick one that, that was close up, that just, you know, that grabbed you. What else? Design. Mm-hmm. Someone? Enormity, yes. Mm -hmm. No, go ahead. Sustains. Yes. Love. The, um, the picture of Yosemite, I took Teresa and I and some friends, we hiked up to Cloud's Rest and looking down at Half Dome into the valley. And I, we sat there for a couple hours just um, enamored by this amazing place. And this is about God not just creating, but sustaining because water over time created much of that. Oh, that's just random circumstance there. No, no, God controls it. And so somehow, somehow in some way, God used that water and carved it out. And I sat there just amazed, eating my power bar. I was tired. Um, of how wonderful our God is. So we live in arguably one of the most beautiful places there is. Many of these places are, are as beautiful as this place, but, but we all love this place. And maybe we're a little too used to it. So let's um, take an adventure and go worship outdoors and walk through creation and look from the simplest thing, the little flowers that are still growing, to the magnitude of Mount Talak, to whatever it is that catches your eye. And let's worship God this week through that. Now let's read the rest of the psalm, worshiping God through his word. We're starting in verse 7. It just abruptly changes. Oh, by the way, by the way, Alex, I'm messing with you again. Could you go back to verse 1? This is a cool little thing I learned this week. Verse 1. Verse 1. Okay. 
Sometimes you say it and nothing happens. The heavens declare the glory of a God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. The word God there is actually the Hebrew word El. It's a singular form of the word Elohim. One of the most common words in the Old Testament for God. It could be God's, God or God's. And in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same word. So Genesis 1, this idea of, of God, who is the creator, it uses the word Elohim. But in chapter 2 of Genesis, when God makes Adam and Eve and, and gets very specific about how he made Adam and Eve, it changes the name to Yahweh. So there's this, there's this creator God. I don't want to make this too simplistic. There's this creator God, and the Old Testament uses this idea of El, Elohim or El. A very common word for God in the, in, in the different languages of the time. But in chapter 2, when it comes to the personal relationship he has with Adam and Eve, it's Yahweh. Well, here we have God creating the glory of the heavens, 1 through 6. It's Elohim or El. But now in verse 7, it switches over to Yahweh. Because now we have a personal relationship in these verses. So let me read to you 7 through 13. The law of the Lord, the law of Yahweh if you're with us today, you'll know that what I do. When you see all capital L-O-R-D, that's the Hebrew name Yahweh. It's God's personal name. The law of Yahweh is perfect. So it makes an, a, a, a declaration. The Yah of, law of Yahweh is perfect. And then it talks about what it does for us. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy. Making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right giving joy to the heart. The commands of Yahweh are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of Yahweh are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. Which, which to us, how many of you have actually pulled the honeycomb out and ate from it? Not a common thing. With Davis, that was normal. They didn't have jars you bought at the store. They would have hives and they'd pull the honeycomb out. So gold and honey, gold of great value, honey of incredible satisfaction to taste. So these things here, he just uses different words for God's word. And David loved the law. Because we understand we couldn't keep the law and that we needed to be redeemed from it, we tend to have a negative view of the law. Well, that's evil. The law is evil. The law is not evil. The law is good and beautiful and right. We have the problem. Do you get that? Never say something bad about the law of Moses or any of the Bible. It is the word of God and it's beautiful. The problem lies in us. And, and, and the New Testament changed our perspective, literally gave me a new heart, gave me a new spirit within me, regenerated me. And put his spirit within me to learn what it means and to obey it. So this is a beautiful thing. David had it, but we have a greater advantage. And do we love his word as much as David did? It refreshes the soul. It makes the wise simple. Making wise the simple. I was going to say makes the wise simple. I didn't mean that. Making wise the simple. Giving joy to the heart. Giving light to the eyes. Enduring forever. And they're all righteous. I want to read to you 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Because right there it says, 
and all of them are righteous. I'm going to come back and finish the psalm in a minute, but I want to jump to the New Testament. Paul talks about the purpose of Scripture in your life. And our lives are so busy. Are, 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 are we not just overwhelmed with busyness? Some of it is what's demanded of us. Some of it is what we choose. And then we complicate it with what we do in our free time. And, and we say, you know, oh, I haven't got any time to open God's word. Um, and I understand that, that perspective. But it's not true. I choose so many things every week that are secondary in my life, but I still choose them and make them primary. And so we have to think about our choices and what our attitude is about growing with the Lord through his word. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy about the Bible. He makes it very personal. Usually we start in verse 16. I'm going to start in verse 14 to talk about the context of Timothy's life. So here's Paul's words to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Paul learned about Jesus and God through, excuse me, Timothy learned about God through his mother and grandmother. Then Paul comes into town teaches them about Jesus. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here it is. All scripture is God-breathed. It's, it comes out of the mouth of God. It is the words of God. All scripture is God-breathed, all of it. 66 books of the Bible. And is useful for teaching. So teaching sets the foundation. We know what's right to do. We know what the precepts of God are and what he calls our life to be each day. But sometimes we get off track, don't we? Anybody else get off track? Okay, I want to make sure there's only one. So it teaches us. What's the next word? Rebukes us. We get off track and the word of God rebukes us if we, if we know it. The Spirit of God will use it and say, hey, hey, buddy, hey, Tony, you know darn well that road you're going down, you had to jump a fence to go down there. You know you don't belong here. It rebukes you. Then what's the next word? It corrects you. It brings you back. Why? Training in righteousness. That's the purpose of the word of God, to train you in righteousness. But that's not the ultimate purpose. In other words, it's designed as we read it, pursue the God who wrote it, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then obey it. God is now conforming the righteousness of Christ in our hearts. We're being conformed to his image. But that's not the end goal. What's the end goal? Verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We can't do the things God has called us to do as his children in his church if this isn't part of our, our core being. We have to pursue God through his word, not as a, a um, duty, not as an obligation or a check mark, a place of self-righteousness, but as, you know, Teresa and I every day talk to each other and say, she regularly says, what are you thinking about? What's on your heart today? And because um, she wants to know me. She wants to know who I am. Right down to what I'm thinking at that moment. I'm not sure I always want to say what I'm thinking at that moment. But that's her heart for me. That's when we go to the word of God. That's what we're doing. God, I want to know your heart. You already know mine. I want to know yours. 
Let's keep reading this Psalm 19, verse 11. By them, that is by God's commands, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. I love that prayer. I, I know when all of a sudden, I talked about before, when that Mack truck called temptation comes at me. You know, and pick whatever temptation you fall into regularly. When that, I call it a Mack truck coming right at me, a big old diesel 18-wheeler coming right at me. And I go, huh, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to stand right in the way because I want to do it. And what does the Mack truck do to me? Runs me over once again. That's, that's a, that is a, a, obviously a choice to disobey God. But here, forgive my hidden faults. There's things that I'm not even fully aware of that are contrary to the ways of God. And he reveals them to me over time. In my entire life, he'll be bringing them up. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. The New Testament tells us in Romans 6, seven times in Romans 6, sin is not your master. This is a great prayer of David. We should pray it, but we should also declare it. God, you have said sin is not my master anymore. Why do I still let it rule over me? Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Let's stop there for the moment. Um, when I started here five years ago, I started in September. January, we started a program where we were reading the Bible together. And I'd put out a reading schedule every three months going through books of the Bible, we did, we did a good percentage of the Bible over those next three years. And I would put out emails, kind of daily encouragements, Monday through Friday. A couple hundred of you signed up for them. Then when COVID hit and we couldn't meet, I started making videos. And, and I just did two a week. They're, they're harder to make than emails. Um, and then I noticed because of YouTube will tell you analytics, how many people are watching and how long they watch. I realized the numbers were dropping and those that were watching weren't watching at all. I'm going, okay, this isn't scratching an itch anymore, so I stopped doing them. And um, I want to start them again. Next week, we start the book of Colossians. And I want us to really dive deep into the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is about the superiority of Christ and, and, and the, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He is supreme over all creation as the Son of God, and he is sufficient to save you. You don't add anything to it. Colossians drives this home. And I want us to dive deep into Colossians over the next several months. But what I like to do is start putting out one video a week, midweek. So I'm going to start that. Next week we'll have a chance for, I'm not sure how we'll do it before you signed up for email. I'm not sure how I'm going to accomplish it. I just kind of thought this this morning. We need to redo this. We, I want to encourage you to jump into the word. And so, so this is, we've, we've learned, we've taught, oh, the Bible's boring. Well, guess what? It can be. There's certain chapters in the Old Testament I go, oh, gosh, I don't want to read this. It's still God's word. The problem's not the word, it's me. And Every chapter, every page, I can learn something about my great God. I can learn something about me. So we need to recommit ourselves to this. Many of you read the Bible through every year. You've told me that. And, and what a great thing to do. And some of you, um, I, I bet if you took your Bible, and this isn't an insult because you could do it to my Bible, and you closed it, and you, oops, I just lost my page. Um, 
and you go, oh, Second Chronicles, oh, those pages are still stuck together because I've never read them. <laughs> I have, but you know what I'm saying. Um, let's commit to getting back into God's word from now to Christmas and using Colossians as our jumping off point so that we can experience like David what they do to my heart, the joy it brings me. Not because I read it, not because I have more information, because I'm growing in my understanding of who my Savior is. Now I've got to find where I was. The last verse. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. So he, he goes over how I look at Creed. David says, I look at the stars and I say, you're amazing. You spoke that into existence. You are amazing. Then I look at your word and I have a relationship with you through that. Thus the name Yahweh used regularly. And he ends it with, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. No less than 20 times in the New Testament, we are encouraged to figure out what pleases our God. By your very existence, God loves you and there's a level where you please him just because you exist. But there's a way I can put a huge smile on the face of God by pursuing him, honoring him, obeying him, and fulfilling what he calls me to do in serving others. I can put a huge smile on his face. That's what David wanted to do here. One more time. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Worship team is going to come back up. We're going to sing a song and we're going to take communion together. So I want you to start preparing your hearts for communion. Let's pray. Father, I, I want to say, Lord... Well, let me back up, Lord. I thank you, first of all, for opening my eyes to who you are, my need for your son, the beauty of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for giving me your spirit to guide me, to teach me, to convict me, to move me. It's all you, Lord. I accomplished none of it, but you lavished it upon me. Thank you for your grace. So today, Lord, as we, as we think about just going out today and seeing the beautiful place we live, let's keep ever present in our mind, Lord, the, the fact that you are the creator and sustainer of everything we see and to worship you for it and to realize that you have given us a greater revelation of yourself in your word and to pursue that, pursue you through it. Help us to get rid of lies we might believe that it's irrelevant, not important. And Father, for me, and I pray this for everybody because I assume they're similar to me, I make my day too complex, too busy, too cluttered. Help me, Father, to learn how to simplify so there's space in my heart and mind to pursue you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray.